Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This is the 300th episode of the show, but first a couple of ad messages. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by the Texas Route 66 Festival, a 10-day event starting June 1st, leading up to the centennial of historic Route 66 in 2026. Among this year's festivities is an event about the Green Book on June 8th, and I'm really excited about it. This was the printed resource for black travelers during the days of segregation, and it included restaurants, gas stations, and hotels here in Amarillo where it was safe for them to stay. The award-winning cultural documentarian Candace Taylor will be in Amarillo for a lecture on the Green Book and Route 66 at 7 p.m. on June 8th at Amarillo College. And this event is presented by the Texas Route 66 Festival. I'm going to be there for sure. I'm really excited. Uh, Go to visitamarillo.com for details about this event. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Dotsie's Boutique online at shop.seas.com, to TripSpots Amarillo Tours online at tripspots.net, and to U.S. Cleaners online at uscleanersamarillo.com. Read the latest issue of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Okay, today's show is a special one because it's the 300th episode of this podcast, which I launched on September 29th, 2017, with an interview with Ginger Nelson, who at the time was just a few months into her new role as mayor. So I celebrated this 300-episode milestone with a show I recorded in front of a live audience on Friday, May 5th at Arts in the Sunset. And my special mystery guest for this live show was Ginger Nelson. Uh, This was recorded the day before Cole Stanley was elected to replace her as Amarillo mayor. So I feel like the interview served as a nice bookend uh, and a reflection on her tenure as mayor. And to her credit, uh, Ginger Nelson was willing to answer some really hard questions, Um, questions about the Civic Center, about her faith, about COVID and her health during the pandemic, about her opponents. Um, And, and, you know, the, the last couple of years have been pretty controversial. Uh, we also talked about the drag show letter that she sent to church groups last fall, which also was very controversial. Uh, this is not a regular episode. There's no eight straight. Um, you'll hear the audience from time to time. The live sound quality is a little bit different, but episode 300 felt to me like a good time to have the first official return guest in Hey Amarillo history. So here's the live show featuring Ginger Nelson. That, that was the big introduction to start the show. Hey, everybody. I'm glad y'all are here. Thank you for coming. This is a milestone for me, and it's something I thought I should do, and I didn't know if anybody would show up for it. So I appreciate those of you who showed up. Uh, it means a lot to me. OK, are y'all ready to do a show? All right. Here's, here's what we're going to do. I usually do all this stuff like uh, in my studio so it's nice and clean, but this is a live show. And so here's how I'm going to introduce the special guest. Um, I'm just going to wing it here. This guest grew up in the small town of Spearman, Texas. She graduated from Texas Tech University with degrees in Spanish, advertising, and law, 
How many degrees did you guys graduate with? She moved to Amarillo with her husband and her high school sweetheart to follow their family's dreams of starting a family and a business here in the Texas Panhandle. She and her husband started their law firm in 2003. They purchased the Amarillo building in 2011. They franchised My Place Hotels in 2014. And this person was elected to a particular uh, governmental position in 2017. I'm not gonna name them, I'm building up the, the suspense. <laughs> this person also was involved negotiating and signing the lease with the Elmore Sports Group for 30 years of Major League Baseball, affiliated baseball here in Amarillo, big deal. Completed construction of Hodgetown, helped open the Texas Tech University School of Veterinary Medicine here in Amarillo. Uh, there are some major wins. There are also some things that are not wins, and we're gonna talk about that, so I would like to introduce my guest, Ginger Nelson. Can I just say, I'm looking at your audience. There are some of my favorite Emerald people in your audience. Well, thank you. Yes, you have a great audience. Um, it's because a lot of people in the audience have been guests on the show, and I like to choose <clears throat> good people to be guests. Yeah, well, you have good taste in people. Well, thank you. I do have good taste in people. I tell my, my kids that all the time. <laughs> How does this sound? Can you guys hear? Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but Ginger Nelson was the very first guest on Hey Amarillo. In September of 2017, uh, we recorded your episode in August in your office of 2017. You had been mayor for about three months mm -hmm. at the time. Catch us up. Has anything happened? <laughs> no, that's not my first question. Okay. Ginger Nelson, thank you for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. I typically start with my guests by asking them how they ended up in Amarillo, We've covered all that territory before. I'll ask people to just go back and listen to episode number one if they want the information about you having grown up in Spearman, going to Texas Tech, being the person who goes to a Mexican food place and orders the hamburgers. <laughs> hey, we did come from a Mexican food place because today's oh. Cinco de Mayo. Did you get a hamburger? I didn't, actually. I, we kind of went heavy on the chips and hot sauce. Okay, so I, that was like the first breaking news that I actually broke was that Ginger Nelson does not like Mexican food. Know, right. uh, had that happened before the election, like, I don't know. You're it exactly been a different right. Amarillo. I got hate mail about that. I, I, I believe it. Okay, let's, let's do a podcast. Okay. What do you consider the biggest win of your administration? Now that you've reached the end, I, I think of this as a little bit of an exit interview. What was the biggest win? I think God presented us a lot of opportunities um, over the last six years. Some of them were challenges. Some of them were more like home run, home run type opportunities. Um, as I look back on it and think what I want Amarillo to have a legacy for, I want them to have a legacy for loving and taking care of people. And so using that framework to say, what comes to the top of the mind about hitting that target the most? And I think it's the vaccine rollout program. Um, and that so much work went into that, and that work was done on Saturdays and at midnight and in anticipation of not knowing when it was going to happen and what it was going to look like. And um, the leadership of Jared Miller and Kevin Starbuck and Casey Stoughton and all of the team that worked underneath them and how they partnered with our medical community 
it was just an amazing effort. Um, and we opened the doors, and Governor Abbott tweets out um, Amarillo is the model for how to do a vaccine rollout. And next thing you know, we're nationally known. Uh, we're getting national headlines for the speed that we're rolling out the vaccine in our community. And that was always our goal, was how quickly can we get shots in arms? And um, really, we had a motto that we weren't going to turn people away because we thought it was that important. And um, so people from other states, even other countries, came to Amarillo to get vaccinated. And we're still known for that. And I, I think that matches the heart of who we are in Amarillo, that we want to be a community that loves people and takes care of people. So I think I would, I would pick that as the top of the list. Um, there are lots of other wins. The vet school is a big win, the first vet school in 100 years. Uh, we're nationally known for that. I was recently in Washington, D.C. at the National Science Foundation. That was the first thing they wanted to talk to us about. That is a huge economic win, an educational win. Uh, we're already outperforming the economic impact in our community, more than $76 million every year. I think the broadband deal that we made, um, $24 million to invest in more broadband expansion and infrastructure, that's life-changing for tens of thousands of students. And, and I think we don't fully understand what it means when all of our students have an equal playing field and they're educated. You fast forward that 10 years, how that will impact our workforce and what that means for our local businesses. It's huge. Um, and then you could even go into Transformation Park, again, loving and taking care of people. Another project that's been five years in the making, still 18, year, 18 months away from opening the doors on it, but I think it will love and take care of people in a way that will change our city. So the, there have been a lot of things that I think God has built a team um, to make a difference during these six years, and the Nelson family has certainly been honored and privileged to be on that team. Okay, so those are some of the biggest wins. What do you consider the biggest failure or disappointment of your administration? Um, of course, you would ask the, the yin to the yang. Um, i got to cover all this. I know, right? And I, I really do appreciate that question because um, it hasn't all been sunshine and roses, and, and there have been a lot of struggles. Um, but I think if I were to try and define what's been the, mo the biggest disappointment um, or the thing that I feel like we've left undone, um, would be figuring out how to solve the challenge of misinformation. Okay. Um, misinformation is rampant in our society right now, really in our world. Um, but we've just never lived at a time where it could be so quickly spread. Yes, they had it in, in World War II, and um, you know, yes, there's always been an anti-campaign, but it's so well communicated now and it's so difficult as just an average person to discern what's true and what's not true um, and i've watched as misinformation has run rampant now in our community on local issues and it's taken down some good ideas so how do we as a community solve that i mean it's that's not government you know, government doesn't bring solutions to people. People bring solutions through government. And we as people have got to create a solution to misinformation. I think some of it is continuing to enlarge the table where more ideas can be heard, more perspectives included. 
but I really think the most important thing is that society would decide that compromise is the way we win instead of compromise something that we consider to be a loss. Um, when we all sit at a table and we share our ideas, we can't expect that our idea is the winner. Then we're all losing. There's 200,000 of us that live in this community together. So I really think that might not have gone a direction that you were expecting, because I didn't, some people probably would think I would pick the Civic Center, and that's certainly a project that I think our city needs and we have to figure out a way to solve. But the bigger issue, the bigger thing, is this misinformation issue and um, equipping people to know the difference between what's being presented as truth and what's truly someone's opinion or even a more dangerous attempt to steer the public conversation away from whatever idea they don't want to be happening. Okay, you brought up the Civic Center. One of the things that I guess has frustrated me over the past few months of the campaign is a lot of candidates are just like saying Civic Center been voted on, city said no, we're past that, let's talk about something else. But it remains a problem for the city and at some point it's a problem that, at least from my perspective, I feel like we need to solve. Um, and you're not going to solve any problems by not talking about it. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I wonder, like, have you thought, and, and I don't want to get into like all the legal stuff or all the, uh, the drama that has associated itself with the Civic Center, but have you thought about how the next council, whether it's this two-year period or four years from now or whatever, can start to think about the Civic Center and solving the problem that, that our community has with it? Yes. I've spent a lot of nights laying in bed thinking about that. Um, and I will back it up just for a broader view of, you know, we, as a city, we do not have enough money to put toward all of the different needs that we have. And the money that we do have comes from taxpayers. It comes from people who pay our sales tax, who are mostly not living in Amarillo, and people who own property in Amarillo and pay the property tax. The only way the city can um, make more money is through raising more taxes. And property taxpayers don't want to pay more taxes. I don't blame you. I'm one of them. But we can't, as a growing city, expect to cut our budget and continue funding growth. Um, if you're a business owner, you know that. You can't grow your business without investing in your business. We are already at... I, we're the lowest in the state per capita for the tax dollars that you pay, you get more in your city operations than any other medium or large size city across the state. Um, so if we're already that low in our tax rate, there just is not room to cut more things and continue growing. So with that little foundation to the answer, I would say you have to find ways to generate more revenue to pay for the things that the city needs to do. And whether that's paying for parks or paying for streets or paying for, you know, we have to expand our landfill coming up in the next 10 years, those are big ticket items. They're expensive. How are we gonna pay for it? The Civic Center was at the top of the list as a project that would generate more money for our city. It would generate more money for our city budget by bringing people in and generating more sales tax and it generates more hotel occupancy tax. 
Um, in September, I went on a tour. I did, a, I did almost 100 businesses in 30 days. I think we did 98 businesses in 30 days. I was shocked at the number of businesses that brought it up and told me, when the Civic Center is active, our business booms. And, and that was furniture stores out on South I-27, like Western stores, custom boots, custom saddles, um, the burrito shop over on East Amarillo Boulevard, a wide variety, stores at the mall, clothing stores at the mall, a wide variety of different businesses in different locations in our city all brought up to me and said, we see a significant spike in our revenue when we have an event at the Civic Center. So if you're looking long-term how to change the revenue of the city, we're never going to get there cutting, cutting expenses. We're already running that lean. We have to think big enough to do something that generates revenue. Now, the next council has to solve that. And um, so I'm not going to weigh in on that because I... I want to support them. I, I don't want to give anything publicly that someone might say, I'm, oh, that's not how Mayor Nelson would have handled it. You know what? The next council is going to have all the information as they sit down to address it. And I'm going to support them any way that we possibly can. I want to ask about the learning curve when you sit down as a council member, a new council member, or a new mayor. And you think you have ideas. You think, okay, I promised this to my constituents. I said I was going to do this thing. And then you sit down and you talk to city attorneys and you find out how all the stuff works mm -hmm. and what you're allowed to do. What's that learning curve like? Because you realize, this is my assumption, you realize pretty quickly, it's going to be hard for me to do the things that I promised everybody I was going to do. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's very accurate. And I think every candidate who campaigns the first time then takes their role and comes back as an incumbent, they're a different candidate the second time around. They realized there was a lot they didn't know and you, you made promises based on what you aspirationally hoped you knew. Um, you get in there and it's a steep learning curve. Uh, we like to compare it to our household budgets or to you know, a small business that runs on QuickBooks. It's not. It's a $400 million budget, and it, it, you know, it uses fund accounting. We have multi Airport has a fund. Uh, wastewater has a fund. And, and you can't pay for streets out of hotel occupancy tax. I mean, so there are lots of rules, and you have to, you have to learn all of that. I really think it takes at least two years going through two full budget cycles before you begin to understand. Um, I, I have pushed for four-year council terms we would be better governed as a city if our council members had four years to serve. But that didn't, that didn't go over when we put that in front of voters. And I think that was a misinformation something that um, misinformation got that, helped defeat that effort. But did I answer your question? Yeah, okay. I think that makes sense. So I wanna, I wanna go back to COVID and none of us want to relive the COVID days. Mm -hmm. But I do want to ask you, because one of the things that I think is significant to me is the attention that we got statewide, like you mentioned, nationally, you were able to make a lot of connections because of how effective that rollout was. A lot of connections at the state level, at the national level. Um, it, it impacted like the AEDC and some of the stuff they were able to do. And I wonder if you could kind of talk about maybe looking back how significant you think that was. And I, I realize it was not all you. It was it was a team. Yeah. Public health was Definitely. a big deal. Definitely. Uh, just everybody on every level, I, I think, was, was doing their best work. But talk about how those connections might impact Amarillo in the future. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, Amarillo is in a unique season of growth and opportunity. And um, part of that has been 35 years in the making through the work that the Economic Development Corporation is doing. Part of that is the Texas miracle where the, the entire world wants to do business in Texas. We're so business friendly. Amarillo is at the top of Texas, literally. We are geographically at the top of Texas, but as far as opportunities are concerned, we have more land. We have a variety of um, economic stimulators, um, so it gives us a wide base to pull from. We're at the crossroads of I-40 and I-27. Amarillo has tremendous opportunity right now, and I'm so excited about it. Um, we've been able to capitalize on it. We've got uh, over 5,000 new jobs from a variety of different industries coming in the next few years. Um, and a lot of things that make us unique. The Texas Tech Vet School makes us unique. It's the only place in the nation where a pharmacy school, a medical school, and a vet school are located on the same campus. And the National Science Foundation wanted to visit about that. They see research opportunities there. Um, we're only the second city in the nation to make a deal with um, Ecolution and begin using kinetic energy on our public works vehicles to store in a battery that can then be um, put into our other vehicles and we can save fuel costs. Um, Producer-owned beef is the only place in the nation that producers own their own beef packing plant. CVMR will be the first rare earth mineral refinery in the United States. It'd be located right here in Amarillo. See how all of these things are making us unique and building a national reputation for Amarillo. So yes, some of it came out of COVID and how that team handled it. Um, but once the snowball begins to roll downhill, it just gains momentum and gets bigger and bigger. And so every one of these projects builds our reputation. And if we don't lean into that right now, for our kids, for our grandkids, for the local businesses that have been vested here for generations and capture that opportunity, um, then shame on us. So I am so excited about the future of Amarillo. I see so much potential. You know, Amarillo's in good shape right now. We have a balanced budget. We've tackled some infrastructure projects. We've reinvested in our parks. Do I want more for our families? Yes. But uh, we're, we're handing over the reins to a, a well-running machine right now. And um, I think the next team has a great opportunity to capitalize on the momentum that we have. Okay, so I, I wanna ask one more COVID question. And this is a personal one. Um, because I think part of the story that we might forget when we think about the vaccine rollout or we think about what it was like during the early days of the pandemic um, was the fact that you were leading the city's response and at the same time period when we had that giant surge in cases that put us on the national radar, you were also battling a rare form of blood cancer. And both of those things, a very public battle and a very private battle, were happening at the same time. I remember there was a CNN article about you you know, this mayor is fighting a surge in cases while also fighting for her life, you know, something like that. I, I, want, I haven't heard you talk about that. And I wonder if you could just tell me what that was like for you, not on the, the public civic level, but as someone who is, uh, who is dealing with that personal crisis while also trying to manage this big public crisis. You know, anybody that's been on a cancer journey, it's, all, it's always shocking 
you don't expect that to be you. And so in the first few weeks as the diagnosis comes and you're trying to assess the impact on you, on your family, on, on, for us, on our kids at the time, our two youngest were in high school, our daughter was in college, um, it was a lot to sort through. It impacts you emotionally, it impacts you physically, obviously, you're scared and worried about that, um, and it impacts you financially. I mean, cancer's expensive, too. Um, on a lot of fronts. And so we were sorting through all of that. And at our house, we really began to realize that cancer was a great opportunity for our family to live out what we say we believe. And that is that this is a temporary assignment. Um, we have one life, and we know it starts and it ends. And the time that we're here on Earth we want to live in a way that it leaves an impact positively on other people. Um, but sometimes we know that intellectually this is a temporary assignment, but we forget when we're doing it day to day to day, we forget that it's a temporary assignment. Cancer gave the Nelson family a gift in helping us to be able to talk about, okay, uh, this brings the end very much so to the forefront. And are we doing what we want to be doing and are we doing it well? You know, talking about what happens after we die is hard. It's hard for all of us. Um, we have deep Christian faith at our house and it's still hard to talk about. But um, we can't control death. I can't control getting cancer. I can't even control how well I respond to cancer treatment. And so it, it just, it really gave our family the opportunity to talk very openly about Jesus, about how much we know we need him, about the promises that he's made us, about what happens when we die. And um, that gave our family a lot of hope. So we were having those conversations in January and February, crying sometimes, um, and then COVID came. And so we had been worried about health and finances, and all of a sudden the whole world was worried about health and finances. We felt very cared for by God specifically, that he had given us a way to tuck in, be close to him, and be fully ready to empathize with what our city neighbors were about to endure. That doesn't mean that we didn't have times where I cried or my kids cried or um, you know, Kevin had to carry all of us through that, um, and I would just call out Kevin. He's sitting here with me and our daughter Madeline. Um, thank you, Kevin, for the way that you carried us through that. Uh, it was a lot. Um, I spent a lot of time in prayer. Um, just reading the Bible gives me comfort, just reminding myself of what God's promises are to us. Um, our parents, Bob and Jackie Pearson and Dennis and Judy Nelson, huge supporters, support system. They were there, you know, while we had to be gone to MD Anderson and our kids were at home. And um, our, our close inner circle friends prayed and prayed and supported. And uh, we couldn't have done it through that. But I think most importantly was just relying on the promises that God makes us and handing all of those big problems back to him over and over again because I couldn't fight cancer. I couldn't solve my own cancer. I couldn't solve the world's COVID problems, but I knew that God could. 
And I'm really proud to tell the story of how God carried us, both as a family and as a city, during that time. Did you ever feel overwhelmed? Oh, yes. Like, what else? Oh, yes. No, there were, I mean, there was a good six months in there where that was my kind of my constant state. I wish there was a way to explain to you guys how much we worked. And if you were in a COVID front-facing position, if you were in the medical community, you understand this. But your city government and your city officials worked tirelessly, nonstop, for about six months. And that means we were on phone calls at 6 a.m. We were on phone calls at midnight. And we worked, I mean, Saturday and Sunday came and went. Like, we, it was not like there was a weekend. The days were rolling, and can't tell you how many times we would, we would work on something. We would get it all ready to go, and the very next day, President Trump would make an announcement, and everything would change. And all the work we had just crunched to do in the last 48 hours just went poof, and we were back at square one. And that happened over and over and over again. It was a very challenging time, and I did feel very overwhelmed. Um, but it was a great time for me, again, to walk out the faith that, um, that Jesus has taught me because I had to sometimes rest. Like, I had to every day take a nap in the middle of the day. I was exhausted, you know, <laughs> my, the post-radiation stuff. And so I just had to say, I'm going to trust that this is going to be okay, Lord, and I'm going to go lay down for 30 minutes because that's what I have to do to take care of me right now. And I promised my family that I would do that. So I learned a lot. I learned a lot about trusting God, and um, I'm still learning about trusting God. Okay, so I'm going to use what we call in the business a segue, which you've given to me. You've talked a lot about your faith, already, like just now. I remember our first conversation in 2017, you talked about your faith in the context of even deciding to run for mayor. Like, it, it has driven a lot of those decisions. And one of the things that has, has become really fascinating to me in this recent election cycle, maybe the last couple of years, is there are a lot of candidates, by my count, nine or ten, who come from a certain church in Amarillo. They are Christians, just like you are a Christian. They have the same faith. Share that with you. But they are very, very much against you. And not just against you politically, like, you made this decision, I might have made another decision. But, like, personally, they don't like you. And I wonder, as someone who has such a deep faith and looking at these others who have such a deep faith, and your faith is the same, how do you make sense of that? And that your biggest political enemies right now are your fellow Christians. Is that fair? Is that fair for me to say? <laughs> yes. You, you gave me a is, look like, how dare you, Jason? No. That is a really bold question, and um, it touches a vulnerability in my heart because I want to be real with you guys that it is painful. It is painful when people accuse you and when they spread things that aren't true about you. Um, but if you just go back to the framework, you can read through the New Testament and look how, look how we treated Jesus. He, came, he loved us first. He led a perfect life, and he came and died because my life wasn't perfect. And so from the get-go, Jesus acknowledges that every person is broken, 
and we all need him. I can't beat death. I can't beat cancer. I can't even beat the mistakes that I wish I didn't make every day. So every single one of us lives life on earth trying to do better in our power. And if you're a Christian, then you have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you also. But we're still not perfect. We're still broken. And so when I look at like the crowd of people that came to City Hall last week, and and that was not okay. You know, that was not Amarillo's proudest moment. It was okay for them to be there. It was okay for them to disagree. It was not okay for it to be so uncivil. And there were people that go to my church that were in the crowd. I love them. I love them. And I love them because Christ loved me first. And Christ allows me to do work even though I'm broken. They're broken too. And they're welcome at my church as broken people because that's the message that Christ told all of us. I'm not saying I don't have to remind myself and walk through that as I also process the pain of going through a really hard experience like that. But to me, the reconciliation already happened. Like, that, that may seem like, hey, those two things don't go together. Somebody who professes to be a Christian and they're accusing or attacking someone else who professes to be a Christian. How does that go together? It, it, it's just the brokenness of people. So someday we'll live in a heavenly community together and there won't be city council meetings and there won't be public address and <laughs> there won't be potholes and there won't be dumpsters. And, um, but I'm not trying to joke that off because I, I want to be real that that is painful, but I also just want to declare there is no perfect church and there is no perfect church member. And that is completely in line with Jesus's teaching. That doesn't undermine the work of the church or the work that God did um, on the cross. It, it justifies it. Like, it's why that work had to be done. So, yeah, it's painful. Um, yes, I love people even though we're broken. And I love everyone who lives in Amarillo. And I can't really explain that to you guys. But I really do. So let's talk about the brokenness. Um, because... I don't think anybody here would be surprised uh, for us to acknowledge that the past seven years uh, nationally uh, have been, I think, marked by a lot of tribalism, a lot of the lack of civility that you mentioned. And I think I was hopeful seeing it play out at a national level that it wouldn't also be a local Mm -hmm. issue or a local story. And it is. I think regardless of of what side theoretically you're on, that lack of civility is something that we can all see. And I wonder, like, do do you see it that way? I mean, do you think the the ugliness of the past um, seven years of politics in America has made its way to Amarillo and that that's kind of what we're seeing is this trickle down of something that started at the top and has now reached the local level? Would you frame it that way or would, Mm -hmm. I mean... It didn't happen before, let's say, 2016. Yeah. I definitely agree that Amarillo is not immune. We don't live in a bubble with regard to the challenges that we're having nationally or societally. 
in public discourse in disagreeing with one another. And I think it's back to sort of that same misinformation conversation we were having. And when people feel like they, when they're scared, when they're panicked, then they think they're justified to throw accusations, to take a moral high ground at any cost. And those are precursors to the breakdown of any society. So it's up to us as members of society to stand guard on that. And I think we do that by learning skills for managing conflict and guarding our own tongue is the first place to start. Do, do my words stir up contention? And, and really, because all people are broken, but life is all about people, they're worth you know, figuring out how to live with because there's a lot of richness in that brokenness too. Um, we can't take shortcuts. It takes a tremendous amount of work to do life with other people. And if, you've, if you're married or you've ever been married, you know it takes a lot of work to be married to someone else. And in some ways, um, living in society together is like one big, giant, corporate marriage, you know? Um, and we need to figure out better skills for doing that. Civility is a choice. Um, it does not mean everyone agrees, but it does mean that we come with willingness to have a conversation about it. The solution is in compromise. And if you come with accusations instead of with a desire, a curiosity to learn and understand, that's a really hard recipe for compromise. So um, I do think that we are impacted just like the national scene is. And I would love to see Amarillo begin to lead out by saying, I'm, I'm not gonna participate in that type of dialogue. Like, wouldn't it have been wonderful if someone would have stood in that room last week and said, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. It doesn't represent our values. Let's respect each other. Let's do this with decorum. And um, let's look differently than the public discourse we're seeing nationally. So we have to beware of using shortcuts. We have to beware of trying to label people, of trying to headline, understand complex issues. And um, it's a challenging thing. That's not how our national news media works. It's not how, um, even as people, we're not trained to want to educate ourselves on complex issues. We would just rather read a headline, make a comment, and move on. So I'm guilty of that too. Okay, speaking of comment, uh, one of the things that you did, um, and I don't, I don't know the provenance of this decision, whether it was yours or the council's or, or what happened, but you moved the public address elements of a council meeting from the end to the beginning. And in doing so, made it much more visible to us. So I don't have to sit through four hours of discussions about potholes in order to make my complaint you know, in front of the council. Now I can just do it at the very beginning of the meeting and you know, throw the whole thing into chaos. Uh, like happened <laughs> last time. Um, not that I had anything to do with that. But I, I want to ask about that decision. Do you think, like looking back, was that, was that a good decision? Was that a decision that maybe had some consequences you didn't really anticipate? Um, now maybe I'm recalling this wrong, but my recollection is that change happened right before we came on council, right when they hired the new city manager and they transitioned, they kind of changed public comment okay, from so it the preceded end. So it preceded you. It was in us, place before you started. But just right before. And so we chose to leave it that way. And there have been some citizens who have expressed a 
an opinion they would like for it to go back the other way. Um, other changes that we did make um, were changing the meeting time to one o'clock instead of five o'clock. It's a business meeting. Uh, feels like it should happen during business hours. We did also ask the citizens to change the charter so that our council doesn't have to meet every week, but that we can meet 24 times a year, twice a month, and that has increased the staff's efficiency greatly. So those have been good changes. I would still support that change to put the comment at the front of the meeting because if we're going to vote on something, I like to have heard what citizens might be concerned about before we vote. The way it was set up before was um, we would vote, and then at the end of the meeting, citizens would go, well, I wish you wouldn't have done that <laughs> because here's my concern. And so this feels logically, to me, a good way of doing it. Your leaders get the input before they make the vote, and I would support keeping it that way. Okay, I want to ask a question about drag shows. Um, <laughs> Why not? Here's, Why not ask all the fun questions? I'm, I'm going to ask all the questions. Here's my perspective, and nobody's here from my perspective. You're the guest. But here's one thing that is interesting to me. You know, you, as I understand it, are a conservative. You ran as a conservative. You probably identify. Um, I am politically a Republican. A Republican. Yes. Okay. Uh -huh. I am. Because of the efficiency of your response to COVID and your administration's response and the larger story that took place related to that, I feel like you got embraced by the more progressive side of the city who was happy about the vaccine, um, who felt we should protect each other, we should wear masks, we're not gonna get angry about these things. And the extreme conservative side of the city got upset about acknowledgement of masks or here's a vaccine or any of those things. And so you built a large, um, based, based on the conversations I've had, you built a large fan base in the progressive community, maybe intentionally or not. And it's weird that it happened that way because mm -hmm. of a pandemic. That's the reality. And then the conversations I've had with uh, my LGBTQ friends are how blindsided they felt when the drag letter, the drag show letter response came out, that this person we saw do such great things for our community, that loved us, that had our backs, that protected us, all of a sudden like the rug was pulled out from under them. And there was, I think, some legitimate hurt. Um, I, I had conversations where the people talking to me were in tears about that. And I wonder if you could talk about that maybe the reasoning behind it, maybe whether or not the letter was a good idea, how you feel about it now, and, and think of the perspectives of having to wade through two very different sides of the city uh, in order to do your job you know, as mayor when you have a situation like that. Um, before I tackle that very good and thoughtful question, why does... Why do local politics get pushed into two different parties? Potholes, dumpsters, streets, police. There, there's nothing political about those issues. And so you don't have to deter. You don't have to say Ginger Nelson, Republican for mayor. No, when you're running. I don't, nor do I really think it's relevant. I've never shied away from telling people um, that I am a Republican and I've 
always been a Republican, um, and I line up conservatively with many Republican positions on issues, um, but I've just never understood why that's relevant to the job of our local, running our local city. And so I would, I guess I would just say, we shouldn't do that. Y'all don't do that. I you agree know? with that. Yeah. Um, okay. But it's, I guess it's okay to be curious about the people that you're trusting in leadership, and that's one fact you want to know about them. Uh, back to the letter. The context of that letter is very important. It, it was written to a local, to a group of local churches that I have um, communicated with a dozen or so times over the last three years about issues that I thought impacted either work that the city was doing that churches could come alongside and help or vice versa. I think it's important to know that I, I never actually considered that that letter would be written to the general public because it was written contextually to a group of Christian leaders. The second thing was the purpose of the letter was to actually point out that the show was going on. Like, we were not stopping the show. They had the right to do the show, and my intent was to communicate persuasively to those local church leaders that as an American, especially as a leader who's sworn to uphold our Constitution and our city charter, I was not going to stand in the way of their free speech rights. And so it was a little bit ironic to me that in the end, it kind of got twisted in a way that was painful. I grieve that greatly to anyone in our community. When I, my real purpose in writing the letter was to stand up for their right to, to free speech and then to encourage Christians to be kind and, and to call them out to walk in the beliefs that we profess together, and that is loving people, being kind to people. You do not have to agree with what their free speech is, but we as Christians should be modeling kindness and love. What I was hoping to persuade in writing that letter was to avoid having people protest, having people shout out at people who chose to come. Again, it's fine for you to have a different opinion about whether or not drag shows fill in the blank, however you want to fill in the blank there. Um, I'm not sure how the letter was leaked out to the press. I guess someone that I sent it to <laughs> leaked it. Would I write the letter again? I would absolutely write a letter again. Knowing now that it was going to go public and that it was going to be read outside the context that I intended for it to be read in, I would draft it more carefully. I would be very certain to say that God loves all people, period. God does not put any ifs, ands, or buts on giving his love to people. And I would be very clear in saying that um, Jesus' gift of salvation absolutely is available to all people. And it grieved me greatly that people read that letter and read it that LGBTQ people could not be saved. That is not true. I do not believe that. And I never would have wanted to 
insinuate that or spread that belief. And so was was it a I a communication problem? Like was it was it an editing problem or a drafting problem? Because I, I remember reading it. I'm sorry, I don't no, I mean to inter good. interrupt you. I read the first 75%. I was like, oh, okay, good, good, good. Oh. It was that last paragraph. And that paragraph. last paragraph, yeah. I thought, oh, no, this is bad. And, and I, that's why the person who sent it to me sent it was like, look at that. Yeah. I just think I didn't draft it well. I 100% own. I drafted it. I wrote that letter. No one else wrote that letter for me. I had a couple of other people um, read it before I sent it. And they knew my heart. They knew why I was sending it. They knew the context it was going out in. And none of us, none of us really read that last paragraph, which after the headlines broke and I saw what people were saying about it, I went back and read it and I was grieved because I thought, yeah, I did not draft that tightly enough. It, it could be read that I am saying that. And, and so to anyone who's listening to this, if, if I wounded you with that letter, I ask for your forgiveness. And I very humbly ask for it. Um, so thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that. I still would write a letter. I would still stand up for people's free speech rights. I would still speak to my Christian brothers and sisters and ask them to respond with kindness and love. But I would certainly draft it in a way that affirmed God's love for all people and that Jesus' gift of salvation is available to all people. I have an easier question for you now. <laughs> <laughs> Has being mayor for the past six years changed the way you think about Amarillo? Mm. Good or bad? Yes. I am definitely changed, kind of back to your question of um, what's the learning curve in doing the job. The more you know about your city, the more you love it. You know, it's kind of like when you become a parent, you love that baby, but the more it grows up and it's charming and you've loved it through puberty and paid for its college and <laughs> you love it that much more, you know, so that's sort of where I feel like we are with the city, um, it, oh, it, it brings to mind that quote by Mark Twain about, um, uh, it's, I think travel is fatal to prejudice and ignorance, I think, something like that. So I feel like we, over the last six years, have had so many opportunities to travel in our city to places, to meet people, um, to experience cultures. We've traveled in Amarillo. And as a result, it's changed us. Um, it's broadened our perspectives, and we have different opinions about things that we're now more educated on. It's just been a phenomenal opportunity. We live in a phenomenal city. In the last six years, I've visited Indian American businesses. I've eaten Somali food at Somali celebrations. I've been to Karen community dances. Um, so many different pieces of culture um, I've also met with people experiencing homelessness. I've been to their apartments once we've placed them in housing. I've met with families that are struggling to feed their kids and um, people that are worried about health concerns and education concerns. And we have a lot of great people in Amarillo and we care a lot about the people that we live with. 
and um, it's it's been an amazing trip. And I would encourage each one of us that live in Amarillo to travel more in our own city. It, it'll broaden our horizons, make us a better place. I want to point out that the first time I interviewed you, um, you cried talking about Amarillo. Oh. And I thought, oh man, people are going to cry when I do this podcast? <laughs> and I was not ready for that. You've not been the only person who cried. But like, it, it's still... Like, talking about it just now, I can see the emotion that you feel. I don't know. I have a question. I just want to point that out. Well, I, that's, it's very human, and I appreciate that. Don't you guys all feel that way? I mean, Kevin and I have lived here for 28 years. Amarillo has been our home city our entire lives. We love it more now, and we're more curious about it than we ever have been. So this is being recorded on Friday, May 5th. Tomorrow, May 6th, is election day in which an entirely new council and a new mayor will be chosen. I haven't looked at the numbers, but based on past elections, about 20,000-ish people vote, maybe a little bit more this time. I think it, we're running ahead, which I appreciate. Uh, which means the winner is going to get about half of that 20,000 votes, maybe a little bit more. But regardless, if the math I'm, I'm doing right, like a person is going to become mayor and people are going to be elected to city council by the votes of one out of every 20 Amarilloans. Mm. And that's significant. Nobody enters politics here with any sort of mandate. One in 20 people voted for you. Congratulations. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I want to hear from you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that the council listens to this. How do you govern a city knowing that only one out of every 20 constituents wants you doing that job? How do you lead when that's the reality of voting here? As Americans, we're so proud of our system. It's a representative democracy. And we have talked a lot in the last six years about the fact that we don't represent voters. We represent citizens and residents. We represent 200,000 people because that's how many people live in Amarillo. And so once I took the oath, I, I felt a deep responsibility for everyone who lives in our city. And uh, yes, I wish more people voted. But the burden I felt was tied to everyone who lives in our city, not just the people who come out and vote. Um, that drove my political strategist bananas. And there were many decisions where, um, you know, political team was counseling to do A, and I chose to go direction B because I thought it was better for the people in the city. And then there was a lot of political fallout for it, you know? And, and we've seen that, I think, more than ever in the last year and some of the decisions that we've led on city council in the last year that we thought were good for the city and we knew they would not be good for us politically. And we chose the city. So, you know, not every political candidate is gonna have that same priority, but we're not doing it for the $10 a meeting. Um, <laughs> We're doing it because we love doing life with you guys here in Amarillo, and we want Amarillo to be the best city that it's ever been. So 
I just have one more question. What, what gives you hope now about the city and its people now that you're stepping out of office? You're just going to be a citizen with no responsibilities. You don't owe anybody anything anymore. Like, what, what makes you excited about the future of Amarillo? I do have a lot of hope for the future of Amarillo. Um, part of it is what I talked about earlier, just saying, hey, we are on the cusp here of opportunity like we've never been before. And we have great momentum. So the city is in good shape. We have needs, but we have a lot of good momentum to get up some steep hills. And so I have a lot of hope um, for us here in Amarillo. But the assignment that we have to do life together in the city called Amarillo is a temporary assignment. And the good news is that I know how the story ends. And um, for those who have taken Jesus's gift and said, yes, I want to make that mine too. Your story will end with us living in the perfect city with the perfect mayor, <laughs> you know, streets of gold and no trash at all. So I believe in that. And you read Romans 13 and it says that government is for the good of the people. And I think that God gives us the opportunity to serve each other and take care of each other and love each other. It doesn't mean we always agree. So I have a lot of hope when I look at the worldly things on Amarillo's report card. Good. We're getting good grades. Um, but my, my real hope is tied to the promises that we have in eternity. And when this assignment ends, I know how the story ends. And that gives me a tremendous amount of hope. Ginger Nelson, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me today. And that concludes the episode. Now, what I want you to know is that next week is also going to be part of the live show recording. And this is the part of the show where Ginger turned the tables on me and asked me questions. And so next week will be a live show episode, uh, but I will be the guest and, and she'll be the host. So you can look forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, I want to say thanks to Ginger Nelson for the interview. And to my live show sponsors, Amarillo National Bank and Texas Tech Pediatrics, neither of whom knew she would be my guest when they agreed to sponsor the event. I appreciate their trust uh, and I appreciate them helping out because this was a really fun night. Reed Beverage also provided drinks for the evening. I'm grateful for that. They were served by Sips and Giggles Mobile Bar, who did an excellent job. I also want to thank Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring every episode of Hey Amarillo. I didn't get to share a museum fact on this one, but I do know that Ginger and Kevin Nelson are very passionate supporters of the museum. Uh, and they would want you to know about the opening of a new curated exhibit of art um, featuring the art of Giselle Leffler. And I have not seen that exhibit yet. I'm going to get to see it this week, actually. And I'm really excited about it. Y'all, thanks so much for listening every week. Um, almost every guest on the show reaches out to me after their episode releases, and they tell me, how many people are talking about it? How many people are telling them that they heard them this week on Hey Amarillo? I, I just am so grateful for that. Hey Amarillo has a surprisingly big audience for being about a city with just 200,000 people in it. And so I'm just always so thankful that you're listening. 
Hey, Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. And a lot of my patrons were at the live show, which I loved. Hey, Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 300. Thanks for sticking around. It's been a long one. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.